Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. he was performing this season with Big Apple Circus. Yes. You said he was doing his trick roping and rodeo tricks with them this year. Yep. But yet here we are at Lincoln Center. This is true. And now we're rounding the corner of the Koch Theater where the ballet performers and there is the Big Apple Circus. Uh Uh-huh. You couldn't just tell me the Big Apple Circus is here in Lincoln Center? Nah, it was more fun this way. More fun? For who? Come on, let's get in there. Welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today, we are going to be discussing the spectacle that is Pippin. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Join us. Leave your field to flower. Join us. Come and waste an hour or two. Doodly-doo. Okay, maybe not two hours, but for the next hour, we plan to take you on a magical journey as we discuss the adventurous and soaring show that is Pippin. The high-flying and acrobatic revival of this show swept Broadway audiences off their feet with its familiar story and songs, as well as daring new tricks and new takes on the classic tale. But before we can join the cast on this journey, we first have to pitch the tent for our circus. Pippin was originally conceived as a student musical titled Pippin, and performed by Carnegie Mellon University's Scotch and Soda Theater Troupe. Stephen Schwartz collaborated with Ron Strauss and when Schwartz decided to develop the show further, Strauss left the project. Schwartz had said that not a single line or note from Carnegie Mellon's Pippin made it into the final version. The musical uses the premise of a mysterious performance troupe led by the leading player to tell the story of Pippin, a young prince on his search for meaning and significance. The fourth wall is broken numerous times during the most traditional productions. The protagonist, Pippin, and his father, Charlemagne, are characters derived from two real-life individuals of the early Middle Ages, though the plot is fictional and presents no historical accuracy regarding either. The show was partially financed by Motown Records. 
The show premiered at the Imperial Theater on October 23, 1972, and ran for 1,944 performances before closing on June 12, 1977. It was directed and choreographed by Bob Fosse. The original cast was led by Ben Vereen as the leading player and John Rubenstein as Pippin. Advertising for the Broadway production broke new ground with the first TV commercial that actually showed scenes from, the, from a Broadway show. The 60-second commercial showed Ben Vereen and two chorus dancers, Candy Brown and Pamela Sousa, in the instrumental dance sequence from Glory. The commercial ended with a tagline, You can see the other 119 minutes of Pippin live at the Imperial Theater without commercial interruption. Musical theater scholar Scott Miller said in his 1996 book, From Assassins to West Side Story, quote, Pippin is a largely underappreciated musical with a great deal more substance to it than many people realize. Because of its 1970s pop style score and a somewhat emasculated licensed version of, uh, for amateur productions, which is very different from the original Broadway production, the show now has a reputation for being merely cute and harmlessly naughty. But if done the way director Bob Fosse envisioned it, the show is surreal and disturbing. Fosse introduced quasi-Brechtian elements to empower audiences. Brecht's distancing effect breaks the illusion of reality to encourage analysis of the play's meaning. The ambiguity of... Pippin's trapped but happy line forces spectators to confront the frustrations of ordinary life as well as the fruitlessness of Pippin's attempt at revolution. Distancing empowers the spectator to think and moreover to decide for themselves. The show opened in the West End at Her Majesty's Theater on October 30th, 1973 and ran for 85 performances. Then came the first national tour opening on September 20th, 1974 at the Scranton Cultural Center. Two more national tours would be mounted in 1975 and one in 2006. For this episode, we will be focusing on the 2013 revival, which makes now the perfect time to meet our design team. The book was Roger O'Hinson, music and lyrics Stephen Schwartz, director Diane Paulus, choreography in a Bob Fosse style, Chet Walker, circus creation, Gypsy Snyder, original choreography, Bob Fosse. The scenic design was done by Scott Pask, costume design by Dominique Lemio, lighting design, Kenneth Posner, Sound design by Jonathan Deans and Garth Helm. Illusions by Paul Kiev. Fire effects by Sheik Silver. And flying effects by ZFX and Company. The show would spring into the Music Box Theater on April 25th, 2013, where it would stay for nearly two years, playing 709 performances, closing on January 4th, 2015. The show then would set out on a fourth national tour, led by the original Pippin, John Rubenstein, this time in the role of Charlemagne. The show would go on to have several notable 
productions around the U.S. as well as around the world. In fact, Pippin was the first production to reopen after the COVID-19 shutdown in Australia. At the 67th Annual Tony Awards, Pippin would sweep away with four awards. Best Actress in a Leading Role in a Musical for Bettina Miller, who played the leading player. Best Featured Actress in a Musical for Andrea Martin, who played Birth. Best Direction of a Musical, Diana Paulus, and Best Musical Revival. It's worth noting that with Patina Miller winning her Tony Award in this category, it marked the first time that another actor or actress had won the same award for the same role, as Ben Vereen had won the Tony for Best Actor in a Leading Role in a Musical in the original production. So with that all being said, let the magic begin. with the leading player of a traveling performance troupe and the accompanying players inviting the audience to witness their show breaking the fourth wall. They begin telling the story of Pippin, who they say is being portrayed by a new actor making his stage debut, the first son of King Charlemagne. Pippin tells the players of his wish for satisfaction, believing he must find his purpose in life. Pippin then returns home to the castle and estate of his father. Charlemagne and Pippin don't get a chance to communicate often as they are constantly interrupted by nobles, soldiers, and courtiers vying for Charlemagne's attention. Pippin also meets with his stepmother, Festrada, and her dim-witted son, Louis. Charles and Louis are planning on going into battle against the Visigoths soon, and Pippin begs Charlemagne to take him along as a soldier to prove himself. He reluctantly agrees and proceeds to explain the battle plan to his men. The players express the battle through song and dance, with the leading player and two lead dancers in the middle dance, Fosse's famous mason trio. Walt's depictions of violence and dismemberment occur behind them. Pippin believed that combat would give him satisfaction, but he is instead horrified and decides to flee to the countryside. There, Berth, his paternal grandmother, exiled by Fastrada, tells Pippin to stop worrying about his future and rather to enjoy the pleasures and comforts of the present. Pippin takes this advice to heart and searches for more light-hearted pastimes. He begins to enjoy many meaningless sexual encounters, but it soon becomes overwhelming and Pippin forces all the women away, discovering that relationships without love leave you feeling empty and vacant. The leading player enters and talks with the now exhausted Pippin, suggesting that fulfillment can be found in fighting against his father's tyrannical ways. He agrees and becomes the leader of a revolution against his father. Upon Festrada's realization of Pippin's plan, she takes advantage of it by devising a plan of her own. If Pippin either successfully kills Charlemagne, or if Pippin is arrested for treason, Louis will be the next in line for the throne either way. 
she gets Charlemagne to go to his annual prayer early, and she tells Pippin that he will be at the chapel unarmed. At the royal chapel in Arles, Pippin murders Charlemagne, and the people bow to their new king, rejoicing that the tyranny has come to an end. The leading player mentions to the audience that they will break for now, but to expect a thoroughly thrilling finale. Act two starts, and as king, Pippin brings peace to the land by giving to the poor, eradicating taxes, ending the military, and peacefully settling foreign disputes. However, this soon falls through as Pippin is forced to go back on many of his promises, reverting to the tyrannical ways of his father. At Pippin's request, the leading player revives Charlemagne, who takes the throne back, and Pippin is left discouraged, as his life is still unfulfilled. The leading player inspired him to keep going down his life's path, but after experimenting with art and religion, Pippin falls into monumental despair and collapses on the floor. Widowed farm owner Catherine finds him on the street and is attracted by the arch of his foot. And when Pippin comes to, she introduces herself. From the start, it is clear that the leading player is concerned with Catherine's acting ability and actual attraction to Pippin. After all, she is but a player playing a part in the leading player's yet-to-be-unfolded plan. Catherine has Pippin to help as a farmhand on her estate. At first, Pippin thinks himself above such things. But after comforting her son, Theo, on the sickness and eventual death of his pet duck, he warms up to Catherine and finds himself attracted to her. But as time goes by, Pippin realizes he's grown too comfortable in monotony and leaves the estate to continue searching for his true purpose. Catherine is heartbroken and reflects on him, spontaneously beginning a song that was not initially in the script, much to the leading player's anger and surprise. All alone on a stage, Pippin is surrounded by the leading player and the various players. They tell him that the only fulfilling thing is their one perfect act, the finale, in which Pippin will light himself on fire and become one with the flame, implying that he will die in the process. Just when he is about to do it, he realizes that there has to be something other than death and chooses not to follow through. Catherine and Theo enter, defying the script, and stand beside Pippin. He sings to her and that his purpose was never in magic, but rather to live an ordinary life. The leading player becomes furious and calls off the show, telling the rest of the players and the orchestra to pack up and leave Pippin, Catherine, and Theo alone on the empty stage. When Catherine asks Pippin how he feels, he says, Trapped which isn't too bad for the end of a musical comedy. <laughs> Ta-da! It's worth noting that these lines did not appear in the 2013 Broadway revival. The, the end. end. talk about the things we liked and maybe the things that needed improvement 
You know, for not doing this for a while, as we're playing catch-up right now, and yes, the listeners know, um, <laughs> that was not bad. That was not a bad segue. No, not at all. Like, silent high-five for that. That was supposed to be silent. What do you do with your life? Sound effects are fun. Fully. All right, but back to Pippin. Because Pippin's all... I mean, look, Pippin's the center of attention. Um, I, I, I really appreciated the fact that we put in the script, we were talking about the 2013 show on this episode, because the first part of that information was the 1977 stuff. And I know that there, we have friends back at home that listen to our show that are probably like, of course Andrew saw the 1977 production with Ben Vereen. He is that old. I am an old soul. I was not alive to see Ben Vereen and Pippin. That would have been cool. But no, no. <laughs> We're going to talk about the most recent production on Broadway in 2013. So, with that, I love this show top to bottom. This show definitely was a highlight of the season for me. Um, in fact, so much so that we named our dog Pippin when we, we got him that did. summer. We did. Mm-hmm. Even though the animal in the show is a duck, yes. we weren't going to adopt a duck. But we got a dog, and we named him Pippin. Yes. Um, but I just, I loved the take on this, because I've never seen a production of Pippin. I've never listened to Pippin. I didn't know much about the show. No. And then to see this come in and have this circus element to it, Yep. I was just 100% hooked, yep. and I just wanted to live in the world. Our friend Kevin. Um, when we were watching the Tony Awards, I mean, he was agog about the show and everything. He loved everything about it. And I was like, I know the name. I know nothing of it. And I think I was a sophomore in a musical theater program at this point. I know it's shameful. But I was like, I don't... It's Pippin. Like, ooh, what's the big deal about it? And then now, then seeing it, I was like, I understand the big deal. You know, um, the interpret, the new interpretation, and like you said, that circus presentation of it was brilliant. What a unique interpretation of the show. And still keeping with the Bob Fosse idea, which we'll, we'll get into more. Yes, but the, the, the nice thing about Pippin is it in the 70s, we were kind of trying to revive what is a musical. This is when we started switching from this golden era musical into what else can musicals do. And the fact that it was a classic storytelling using vaudeville elements, which again, reaching back in our musical theater history. But with that rock, funk music, and then also that sultry, sex, all that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It just, it was such a, it was a beautiful Collaboration. I like that it got into dark storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, almost like a grim fairy tale, if you will. Yeah. You know? Um, and, and the music, while we touch on it, was so good. I can't get the music out of my head. In fact, I added one of the songs in my book. But we're going to talk about that later. You really, like, fell in love and were fascinated by just the spectacle of it all. Yeah. You know? Um and again, all these points we're going to get to here in a minute when we dive into our boxes. The last thing that I want to add, one of my favorite moments that I love, and as we mentioned in the synopses, um, when Pippin decides, like, no, I'm not going to go become one with the fire, right? Mm-hmm. And the leading players telling everyone, pack up and go home and everything. I'll never forget as the set's being torn down and everything, and they're taking off the costumes of, of Pippin and Catherine, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Toby. 
Toby, right? Theo? Theo, thank you. Toby's Sweeney Todd. Wow. <laughs> you can see what's on my mind. Um, but they're taking off their costumes. They're packing up everything. And Patina Miller, the leading player, looks right at the conductor and just goes, Put that damn baton down. You know? And I was just like, Is that in the script? Because, I mean, a lot of that moment felt ad-libbed. She seemed... and, and, and She was and, genuinely raging. Yeah, and she seemed like she was yelling at everyone and anyone to just, you know, you know, turn on the house lights, turn off the stage lights. And I was like, are, are those actual lines in the script? Or are they... Or was she just told to randomly rattle off... You know, four or five things to to wrap up, and you have to at least name these things. But then, like one day, she just decided to tell the um, conductor. conductor to put down the damn baton. You know, and the way she said it, and the way she pointed, and it wasn't a point like with your wrist down. It was that like Fosse esque wrist up, almost like twisting. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "Where are we going from here?" Mm-hmm. You know, and. That all happens, and then what I loved about this ending is everybody leaves. They have their little family moment. Catherine and Pippin leave, and Theo sings the last little bit of Corner in the Sky, and the show starts again. You see the leading player, yeah, like appear from the back. And approach Pippin, and then all of a sudden... You mean approach Theo. Yeah, sorry, approach Theo. Well, because then all of a sudden you go, wait. And you, what what the story you thought you were getting, like the, the you know, oh, you're just getting the story of this one person, you start to go, was this maybe... There's two tracks you can go. Is it the whole, like, it, the idea of the circus and whatnot is goes from father to son... Mm-hmm. Or is it just in your mind? Right. But also the commentary of what it's like to be a performer and the journey that a lot of performers take because so many times as a as a as a performer you're told to give up everything in your life just to get that leading oh role. Oh my god, absolutely. Just to be that that front row center just to be the, in the spotlight. To give your entire life over. And then when you decide, I don't want it, I'd rather have life or something. Then the next generation. Well, everyone turns in. their back on you because, oh, you clearly just weren't dedicated enough to the art or whatever. And it's like, we, you can think that, but I'm actually. I'm happy. I'm going to just go do this. But then you see that next generation pick it up and that toxic cycle begins again. And, and I mean, it's getting less toxic. That's another. This is true. That's another subject for like a Broadway bulletin or thing. But it just the ending that they had for the show. I was like, wait, because I it it made the interpretation of everything I'd seen that whole time previously go. What? Yeah. <laughs> I I thought I was looking at this from like this is Pippin's story, and then I'm like, was this in his head, or maybe this. Maybe all these people were. Fit. I mean, you know what I mean. Like it could. It made you go. Does everybody else see these people, or are all these people in someone's head? Well, and see, and I got that, but I I could see that. But what I more got 
because it was like, oh, Pippin's being thrown into this role. It was everyone is playing a part that they're supposed to be in society. And when you decide to choose your own happiness and to break the mold, you're breaking the end of that toxic right, life right. cycle that begins. And so it doesn't really have to do with like, with like Pippin's story at all. It's just a placeholder for a commentary but on that's the way what that the people ending, live life. That's what the ending did though, is it, it created, it took the straight path that we saw and then you put that ending in right there and it went, you look in the rearview mirror and you realize there's it's actually like a three lane highway. There's actually like three different interpretations of what you just saw, all mm-hmm. because of the last minute of the show. And I was like, that is so smart. You didn't change the story. Mm-hmm. The story is still the same. The journey Pippin went on still is the same. It's the interpretation. It's literally like you've got three colors of lenses. You can look at the whole story. And then you're like, I need to go back again to look at it under this lens. You know what I mean? Exactly. So let's dive into our little boxes now. Which I'm excited to talk about. <laughs> let's start with set. Set. Um, I love the circus setting of everything. Yes. First of all, the circus tent. <sighs> so they had a circus tent. Like, okay. From the proscenium all the way to the back of the stage and around was like a giant circus tent. And, you know, you were meant to believe that the rest of it came out obviously around the audience. Mm-hmm. And what was amazing was... Um, actually, I want to I want to tag that thought in a minute, but I love that tent and the way they incorporated it and the things that came in through it, like the cage and the players and that that they mm-hmm. that that tent not only acted as a tent to be like, look, we're a circus, but also it was like a curtain. Because back to your thought about the vaudeville, it acted like the grand curtain to open and mm-hmm. you know, of course, we had the three players dance, the famous the Mason Trio, mm-hmm, the famous trio dance and emerge from the curtain and whatnot. Um, and and I like I said, I love the floating set pieces that they brought in, um, the kinds of thrones that came in, the beds, the cage, the stairs. The, that, the, the balls, the, the yes. boxes. The... Um, and it was almost, and, and these items, well, before we get to the balls and, and the boxes and that, because that's going to be separate, sorry. But like all these other things that they brought in, right? Mm-hmm. They almost doubled as like, train cars that the circus would travel on mm-hmm. and i was like okay i'm picking up on this then you tie on i'm gonna tie in this part of the set these items that the different performers carried the balls the hoops and whatnot you know one thing that was cool is the fact that they used the performers as about pippin with these items and their bodies Mm-hmm. Well, because they were these, they were real circus performers. Yes, in the cast, which I remember. Uh, well, that's the memory. Um, so, if you want to see how they spelled out Pippin and they use it, because he did do this, he dove through the hoop. Check out the opening number from the sixty-seventh annual Tony Awards. Neil Patrick Harris jumps through. Um, the hoop, and he says, it's Pippin. And the performers spell out Pippin, and Neil Patrick Harris jumps through the, the hoop that's with paper. That's really what they did. They also did that on, I think it was the Tonight Show or the Late Show. Hmm. One of those two. Um, but yeah, it it was incredible to see. So these, 
all these elements really just brought that together and then but they didn't overshadow the story now you've got all these elements that were complementing this story and building up building up and then we get to the end and i loved because the, the 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 theater the stage was so massive and the music box is not a massive theater is the thing especially mm-hmm. the stage um, the most recent production that was Dear Evan Hansen. It is not a massive stage, particularly depth-wise. Yeah. But it looked massive. Well, and it was just that they had literally stripped it down to its bare bones. Like, all the masking was gone, all the yeah. set pieces, everything was gone. So when they took it all away, it was so bare, and you were like, wait. And what's interesting is usually when you take something away, the space gets bigger. And in this case, it actually got smaller. Mm-hmm. Because that the tent just really made it... You were believing that everything could fit in there, and it was just this big, magical space. It was incredible. So that set, <clears throat> so good. Tying into that, we go to the costumes, which were amazing and simple. Mm-hmm. Um it's kept like a very simple color palette that, you know, purples, reds, blues, um, stuff that you'd expect at the circus, like in a very classic circus look. But it also kind of looked like we were playing dress up. Yeah. It looked a little kid-like, like in, if you were a kid in your mind and, and how people would look if they were playing dress up. And I mean that as a compliment. Mm-hmm. That did not look like... Fancy beadwork, you know what I mean? Like everybody looked storybook. That's the word I'm looking for. Like fairy tale storybook. Charlemagne looked fairy tale storybook, um, and and I think you nailed it with the colors and whatnot. There was no like elaborate like tiger print, you know. It was a lot of basic, solid like mm-hmm. with just. Sh- it was all about the shapes because there were stars. Um, the the most intricate was the beadwork. For Fastrada. Yep, um, she, and that's because of who she was. Mm-hmm. Um, but everyone really kept to this... I mean, the, the designer did just such a, a beautiful job of creating this really... Like, if you typed in children's circus, that's what you saw. I loved that Pippin was basically in a chain shirt most of the show. It was almost like he was wearing armor. Like, he's trying to protect himself from something. He's mm-hmm. guarding himself, his heart from something. And then I also love that Granny was a showgirl. Mm-hmm. She came down on like a swing or whatever. Andrea Martin came down, you know, and I, oh, Andrea Martin is just America's sweetheart. I love Andrea Martin. <laughs> she can do no wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then so you've got these simple but brilliant costumes. This huge, beautiful set. How do you emphasize and make that better? You throw in these great lights. Uh, the lighting. One of my favorite moments is when the leading player is lit, like lit from the. There's like a, a curtain is closed, and they're on the back side of the curtain. So you light them from behind. You just see yes. the silhouette. And it's just stunning. It's the iconic. Yeah. It's it is the it is the iconic Pippin look. Mm-hmm. And then it has that Fosse esque move. It's just Fosse move, not Fosse esque because it is Fosse, baby. 
esque. Um, it only, the lighting only enhanced the spectacle of things, and it also helped to make the space feel enormous mm-hmm. because that light brought the colors and everything out into the audience. Mm-hmm. So it spilled out, and you just felt like you were in the circus. And that's also why it hit even harder when they took it all away. And the house lights came up, and then the work lights came on on stage, and you were like, what? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, I love the different moods that the lighting helped to communicate and set, especially in the middle of songs. So if you listen to the soundtrack, there are several songs that the mood will change in. So for instance, uh, the sex song, I can't think of, but the sultry song, mm-hmm. it's like very love, lovey, right? And it's, there were, it was like purple and red, and then all of a sudden it changed to this orange. And red. Yes, and and... and Oh, no, no. First, it changed to orange, and you saw the cage get brought out with the leading player on it. Dun, dun. And she cracks the whip. But dun, dun. You know, and then the minute the electric guitar comes in, this red comes in with this orange, and it was like, okay. But then when we had these soft moments, we'd have these blues and greens, and they were just subtle. Mm-hmm. And they were just, they helped to really add to that. That I don't know. It's that 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 meme. You know, the guy that just flicks the salt from his oh, like, salt elbow. Bay? Salt bay. Yeah. It's just like that. Mm, just a little bit of uh to emphasize that part with that mm-hmm. music, that acting. You have that connection on stage, and then it's like, in case you need a little subtlety, here's a little bit of light color that just envelops them a little bit to communicate. That. Well, and one of the thing, one of the ones that I remember the most is. Um, when uh, Berth is talking to Pippin and trying to comfort him as a child, it she looks like a mobile, like a, a baby's yes. mobile. And, but then you see that light just spill out gently into the audience, and it looks like a nightlight. You know, there's those soft blues with the stars rotating through it, and it just... And the fact that it keeps spilling, and of course she then turns to the audience at one point in her song goes... Everybody, you know, mm-hmm. she wants to comfort all of us. Andrea Martin is all of our grandmother. <laughs> mm-hmm. I love the multi-directional lighting. And I know that seems weird in like a, a Broadway show. And it's like, well, duh, they have moving lights. But what I mean by that is from the lip of the stage, they had these lights, these lip lights. Like footlights. Mm-hmm. And it, gave, it totally gave that vaudeville feel. And also especially towards the end. And especially in Act Two, when things got menacing with the players, mm-hmm. particularly the leading player, it really, when you use footlights in a show, the shadows that you get cast on the face creates a different mood. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is, Patina Miller doesn't have the kind of face that's like evil. No, she at has, all. She has a very, uh, she has a round face. Yeah, which is beautiful and stunning, and it's a face you can trust. Exactly, which is also why the fact that she was cast as the witch in Into the Woods, I was like, yes, I am okay with this because she has the ability to be sharp tongued, but you're still like I, I can, mm, I want to talk to you, I want to trust you, nonetheless. And she's gorgeous. So to use that shadow effect though on her face gives her that, ooh, something's off here. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, we know like beware, something's amiss, but of course Pippin might be like, oh, but I've been with her for so long. Why would she lead me astray? Mm-hmm. Um, and we really saw those footlights in effect with 
the finale. Think about the sun. And if you listen to that song, the music is just like, yeah, it's so 70s, like after school special almost. Like, yeah, let's do this. And then you like listen to the words and you're like, what the hell? And they're basically telling him, go kill yourself. It'll be perfect. It'll make everything better. And you're like, what? And mm-hmm. those footlights are on. And so they're doing this song like it's a happy-go-lucky dance. And it's like, actually. But there's these footlights, and so they have these shadows, and it's very demented. Mm-hmm. And that leads us to the next one, which is the direction. Diana Paulus's direction. Oh, my gosh. Of all the shows that we've seen, this direction is in the top three. If not number one. I love Diane Paulus's direction. Um, she she is absolutely amazing. Um, she currently, she's the one that's directing 1776. So I can't wait to see it and be like, mm-hmm. tell me what. She always takes a show and turns it on its head. Mm-hmm. Um, which is really fantastic. The last show of hers that we saw um, was Hair. I did love that one. So she did the revival of Hair. Um, and then before Pippin, she did the revival of Porgy and Bess, which was a huge success. And then, of course, she just recently did um, Jagged Little Pill. Mm-hmm. So to me, anything this woman touches turns to gold. Um, she was supposed to do um, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Oh. With um, Laurie Metcalf. And I was, I was seriously, I was all like, ah. Like, I was freaking out about that. But then, of course, Coco came around and was like, no, I'm going to rob your life of this. Because, um, yeah, Diana Paulus just looks at a script, at a material, and just, I don't know where she comes up with the ideas that she does. But she takes you to a whole nother world. She is such a genius. Well, and it honestly, her directing style is like a croissant. Follow me on this one. It's got layers. It's got nice, buttery, flaky layers. And the more time you take to build each layer with butter, dough, butter, dough, just the better it is. You know what I mean? Are you hungry? Listen, I can always go for a croissant, but, but that's what her directing style is no, like. I mean, it's, you're, you're not it's got that wrong. delicious flakiness, but then it all still comes together and... The more you eat it, just the more you appreciate it. Yeah, no, I <laughs> seriously, I, I I will see anything she does purely because I just feel like she's inspired, you know. Mm-hmm. And it really, she doesn't. I've I've never seen her work like her work looks complete. It doesn't look half-assed. Mm-hmm. It doesn't look. She complete. She makes a complete world. Not just a picture, a world. world. And it's completely thought through in every element. Nothing on stage yeah. is, it, is it, not it thought goes, out. It goes beyond just the script, just the text. And it and she marries all of the elements in such a beautiful way. Yeah. I love that Diane amplified Bob Fosse's original idea of the show. So if we go back to that um, that excerpt from, uh, from Assassins to West Side Story, that scholar... Um, uh, uh, Scott Miller, who mentioned that it was that that Bob Fosse envisioned the show as surreal and disturbing. Mm-hmm. She did that, in my opinion, incredibly well. So, I mean, it 
you thought you were getting this cutesy little fairy tale kind of thing because a lot of people know Pippin as that, you know, because everybody has Pippin. High schools do Pippin. But she was like, actually, actually, there is debauchery. There is murder. There is recklessness and sex and abandonment. And, you know, there's all these issues. And so how are we going to do all this? And still keep that beloved Pippin quality. But put it quality. with a smile Exactly. On, you know, like, it's almost like it's a cult. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and, and so you... What's incredible, I mean, this is gonna this is gonna be my bad analogy, is we're watching all of this, right? We're watching this this um, dominatrix scene. We're watching him kill his father. We're watching Festrada, you know, who's supposed to love Charlemagne, celebrate the idea of her her husband being killed, and yeah, dude, dude, dude. Um, they're going to go kill a bunch of people. They're going to go to war and kill a bunch of people. And yes, we're going to lose a bunch of people, but we're going to go kill a bunch of people. You know, all of this is happening. And we're applauding after every song and we're getting into it. And as little like Beetlejuice says, wow, those guys just died and you're clapping. I like you all. You know <laughs> what I mean? Like, it's that kind of dark thing. And that's what Bob Fosse was like kind of going with. Is like, yeah, it's dark, but let's be real. You enjoy the darkness. Mm-hmm. And I love that she brought that kind of... She allowed the music and the circus element to keep you in that warm, safe place while letting the material be the dark stuff. Because mm-hmm. she didn't alter the material. Mm-hmm. Um, the real circus performance for the stunts in the show was Chef's Kiss. Because the, the level of stuff that she was able to do Mm-hmm. Because of that was so important. The the flying. The contortionist. The oh. just all, all of it. all of the tricks, the the balancing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the knife throwing. Yeah. It I've never seen to this day, since then and before then, I've never seen things like that. And everything truly worked in perfect synergy to make the show such an incredible spectacle and sight. And it just kept audiences coming back. Well, and it's because not only was it this beautiful spectacle, but it also stopped your heart and made you lean into it and just go, whoa. Yeah. And then there was that story on top of it. And you wanted to go back and you're like, I gotta see this again. But then you saw something else. And that's the beauty of her direction. And the fact that she said, this is what I want to do. And she brought in these people, these designers that also shared that idea and were able to execute it. They all, I mean, it was all in tandem. It worked so well. It starts at the top, works away in the circle. Everybody, all the cogs are working together. Oof. Um, I want to go on to music. Total Earworms, Stephen Schwartz. I don't like all of Stephen Schwartz's stuff. I'll be, I mean, look, we're going to give you honesty on this show. If there's one thing we'll give you, it's honesty. We won't give you the fake, like, everything is great. La, la, la. There are some of Stephen Short's show that I'm not the biggest fan of. Mm-hmm. This is not one of them. This is one that I'm like, oh, I, I like this show a lot. It, it's funny because with any composer, I'm always like, oh, this is my favorite of their work. Oh, this is my favorite of their work. But there, there are three works that Stephen Schwartz is most known for. Wicked. And in order is... Wicked. Number well, one. Number one is Wicked. Okay. I was going to say in order... 
Um, it goes Godspell, Pippin, Wicked, because that's the chronological order that he did it in. Uh, okay. Yes, I have it in front of me. Okay. Um, and so, um, he's known for those three works. Mm-hmm. And if you try to, like, break it apart and go, oh, well, this is his most influential and important show. You're like, but, but then this. And then, but, but then this. Um, and they're all very different. Yes. They are all so vastly different that it's it's honestly very surprising that it's from one one person. Um, and so I think that that's kind of what the brilliance of Stephen Schwartz is, is being able to alter and commit his art to the work rather than um, ha- having his defined style. You know what I mean? Like, he does have certain things that are like, oh, yeah, that's I'd Stephen Schwartz. I'd say Godspell and, and, and Pippin sound similar. There are similar sounds, but they're, they're a year apart. Exactly. Um, so, But no, I, I know exactly what you're saying, where if we stacked Wicked and Pippin next to each other, you know. No, they sound completely different. And you couldn't be like, oh, Wicked's more important. Oh, Pippin's more important. Or better or worse. Or I think know? that he likes to delve in two realms. I think he likes to delve in like the fairy tale realm or the religious realm. Because he mm-hmm. you know, he's also got Children of Eden mm-hmm. or the Prince of Egypt. He likes to deal with he likes to deal with fables or stories a lot. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. And, and that's why he commits himself completely to the project he's working on and creates its own world as well. Yeah. What I loved about his music is that he, the, the music, this particular production had this rework, they reworked the music so that it still had this 70s feel and funk to it, this grimy funk to it. Um, but it also was very showy and classic vaudeville to it. Mm-hmm. So this is something, and I have a hard time putting it into words. With revivals, okay, the qua- sound quality has evolved. And you particularly get this with electro- like shows that have electronic instruments. Rock, rock musicals, if you will. Mm-hmm. Like shows from the 70s, they do. They have this grime, a little bit of a harsher grime. Because, you know, the sound quality wasn't as good as it is now. So for them to hold on to this a little bit, where you do, you have that grunge, a little bit, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Still in there. But it's also cleaned up a little bit, so we get that. Like I'm thinking of the opening of Act Two. It sounds like um, a pipe organ. Mm-hmm. You know, it sounds clean and upbeat, and 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 like a Broadway orchestra. But then we do get the rock guitars in um, other parts. You know, in in the dominatrix scene in. Join us, uh, magic to do. Mm-hmm. You still have that, you know. So I love that they, they've got both elements in there, to make that in this particular revival come through. And I love Stephen Schwartz's. Um, I just love his rhythms and his melodies that come through yes. in this show. I mean, magic to do really is such a good song. Morning glow is so beautiful. It's such a beautiful song. Um, oh, what is Andrea Martin's song? Um, oh, it's time, time to start, start living. living. Time to start taking Just no time at all. Is- yeah, such a good tune. Um, there's at all. Charlemagne's song, um, the one about war. 
Oh, War is a Science? War is a Science is such a hard comeback to Gilbert and Sullivan. Mm-hmm. Because it gets faster and faster and faster and faster. It's a patter song. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, that's smart. You know, the audience is enjoying it because, you know, it's ha-ha clever. But I'm like, that's smart. That's knowing your roots of musical theater and including it in there. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just such a really great, great score. Um, and we would be remiss if we didn't mention... Finally, choreography. Well, this show is iconic in choreography. It's Fosse as. I'm just kidding. No, it's, it's Fosse. <laughs> it's Fosse. Pure, simple. It's Fosse. So, um, I was having this conversation with um, a previous guest on Whisper in the Wings about Fosse. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I love about Fosse is the words and expressions that can be told. By just the simple movement of the wrist and the extension of the finger. Mm-hmm. Or the shrug up of a shoulder. Like, it's not... And, and the thing is, I think a lot of people assume Fosse for just sex. Because of how, like, round and curvaceous it can be. Mm-hmm. Well, and at the time he was... At his, the height of him defining his style. Um, that wasn't something you saw in the mainstream. Was well, yes, the sensual, but, sexy but, style. But, but, but see, I don't think that's that's the point of it. What it is to me is it's not sexy and sensual. It's alluring. It's hypnotic. Do you know what I mean? When the show starts and we see that silhouette and they're rolling their shoulders back and then you see that cross, cross, and the hands are going behind it. Join us, leave your field to flower. She's not necessarily seducing you, right? Mm-hmm. Or they, I should say, because it could go either way. Mm-hmm. They are working the crowd and trying to captivate you and allure, and they're luring you. And I think that's one of the things that I love about Fosse is it's not about sensuality. It's about flow and movement and the fact that it doesn't stop with the extension. The extension leads to the next, oh, it's actually in the right arm. And I just move my right arm and it comes out of my wrist and into my finger. And oh, it's in my neck now and it's rolling down into my left. Does that make sense? The thought or the feeling is just moving through my, it's constantly moving. And I'm going to lure you. I'm going to intrigue you with that. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think. Now, there, I do think there is sexuality in some of Fosse's dances. Absolutely. But not in all of his choreography. Um, so I love that these soft touches and these expressions being said with just the slightest movement is just so beautiful. Just the touch of the hat, the, ro- the rotating of the wrist in the, the, the trio. Mm-hmm. You know, it's... It's incredible. And you know, and the thing is, is you didn't have to look at your playbill to know that it was Fosse. Oh, no, not at all. Like, even just the opening player or the leading player in the opening scene, just that stance is quintessential. The iconic stance when she's got the, the Rolled, flexed foot. Uh-huh. The beveled foot. The And the jazz hands fully extended. With the tilt. With the right hand and the tilt. And yep. then the pelvis forward. Yep. That is, is that is Fosse. You don't have to know who Fosse is, but you go, I know that's something in musical theater and that's famous. And I'm just, that is the mark of a true icon. Mm-hmm. And the, you can't do Pippin without his choreography. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. It's like trying to do, 
in my opinion, and this is my opinion, it's like trying to do West Side Story without the choreography of Jerome Kern. You yeah. can't. You you have to still have that incorporated because they are so synonymous. They are connected. So, I just, um, I say yay to this choreography. It was, and it was executed so well. And and if you notice in some of the circus movements too, there were elements of Fosse. Yes. And some of their lifts and moves and that, and some of their flourishes. And I was like, this, this is smart. This is really, really well done. The show has had several notable performers, including Ariana DeBose, John Rubenstein, Christopher Sieber, Charlotte D'Ambois, Terrence Mann, Rachel Bay Jones, Andrea Martin, and Patina Miller. about the impact that the show's had on the theater and its history. Theatrical impact. This was another huge hit for Stephen Schwartz. You know? Um, and, I, I mean, you, you had that list pulled up, and I can't quite remember what came first. But I'm just going to say, you know, in, in, in the big picture, you know, you mentioned Wicked and Godspell. Well, there's Pippin. That's another hit for him. Um, the other thing is, this is a hugely accessible show for audience and audiences and performers. You don't have to do the show with circus performers in that. No, you don't. Most people don't. But this show, with its great music and its simple story, I'll say, very accessible. The brilliant score. This is a brilliant score for the tomes of the theater. Mm-hmm. And then uh, this production in particular was a huge spectacle. with was so much fun with... So much use of the art of circus. We don't see the art of circus used on Broadway really at all. It's very rare, mm-hmm. particularly in real circus performers. So I would say, you know, that's a huge theatrical impact to utilize to say, you know, circus, come here and, and band with us, you know. Right. Um, to me, that's a theatrical impact. I don't know if you have anything that you want to add on that. Um... I mean, as a theatrical impact, I think that there's so much... I, I don't think that Pippin itself gets enough um, credit for how it altered theater. Um, and this goes beyond just our revival, right? Right. Um, I think um, at the time you had shows like A Little Night Music, and this was the early 1970s, everything was still a lot of escapism and th- but this is when you start seeing that emergence of using the theater um so using the theater to well using musicals to hold an, a mirror up to society because you had after world war ii when you had modern contemporary i can't remember what exactly the style is called but that's when you had a lot of plays that were calling into, you know, affect the, the human the human response to traumatic events in life. Um, you had that happening in the 50s and 60s in plays, but 
but it wasn't really like musicals were always kind of seen as a little bit more of a place for escapism but in the 70s is really when we start seeing these more complex human emotions breaking into it and Pippin really started this idea of defining that yes musical theater can be used for self-reflection it doesn't just have to be you know happy or sad or you know these beautiful things we can tell sex and grit and dirty to it and so then when we got to the um 2013 revival um it was kind of that reemergence of it um of reminding us like because you had a lot of people talking about how oh we're doing things with theater we've never done before it's like well actually this kind of started earlier you know, mm-hmm. this is a path that we've been on that we can use this as a tool as well as entertainment. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's, you know, pretty important to remember that Pippin had that effect on audiences and our history as theater. I also would add that, you know, um, the ad, the TV ad, that's oh, yeah, a the- very theatrical impact, you know, because... Um, Look, if you're in the in the tri-state area here, I, I mean, I, I can't speak for everyone, but I know that like, when we're watching, as we're binge-watching Law & Order SVU, shout out Mariska Hargitay, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, on Hulu, when we get um, like the ads, we'll get ads for Broadway shows like Into the Woods and Aladdin and The Lion King, you know? Um, and that wasn't a thing when Pippin first premiered. And all of a sudden, to show this 60-minute television commercial... That's going to lead to bigger things later on, especially uh, in the late 70s and 80s, such as the I Love New York campaign. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, we can show clips of these musicals and these shows to bring audiences in. They don't just have to look at a picture in a paper and come to see it. They can see this new, I know it sounds weird, but this new media medium, which is television. Yeah. We can utilize that and that will later lead on to obviously the internet and social media the other thing that i think we forgot to mention in regards to theatric impact is of course fossey mm-hmm. it's a fossey show mm-hmm. it's it's a show that has fossey's fingerprints all over it not just as a director but as a choreographer and as him really defining and solidifying his style right so moving on to societal impact um i'm not sure this show brought a huge like and we're back to the revival in particular I'm not sure the show brought a huge message that was needed at this time. But, like, that being said, because it was such a recognizable title and show, and because it was such a huge spectacle, it brought audiences and droves to the theater. Like we've mentioned, like, people were wanting to come to see these flying circus performers, or the Fosse style, or just, just, you know, the giant stage and that. And it also was an intergenerational show. So grandparents and parents could see, could go and see it to remember the show they maybe once saw back when it first premiered. And a younger audience could take it in for the reimagining that it is now. Mm-hmm. You know, because it was a big hit in the 70s. And so maybe you had these this generation of people that are like, I remember Ben Vereen, you know, I remember seeing it in the 70s. I want to go see what it's like now. And all they, you know, wow. It's fresh and new, and then you've got kids that are like, "What?" You know, like we, like the reaction that we had, we were like, "Oh my gosh!" So, um, I gotta follow me on this one. 
So, with Pippin, um, the 1972-1973, when it first came out, Mm -hmm. was the same year that Roe v. Wade um, happened. So, when the Supreme Court overruled states' bans on abortion. And then in um, in 2013 was when... um, the Supreme Court overruled the ban on same-sex marriage. Yes. So you had these two kind of um, landmark cases for um, just people, right? So I think Pippin is a reflective story. Um, it just really calls to attention. So I think that just the timing of the show shows the like the reason why it was so successful in both those years um, is because you have people who are in a, a mindset of wanting change and of like civil distress and you had shows like Pippin helping to bring forth that consciousness of what do you as a human want and reminding the consciousness like the the audience members consciousness of what's happening um and so i think that the the impact of the show societally is actually more of a uh it's it's a reminder of the mirror i I mean i would go with you down that path only so far because i think both of those decisions came out in the summer i know that the 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 you know legalizing of gay marriage came out in the summer and Pippin had already been running. In fact, it already won its Tonys by that time. So I would call the second a coincidence. No, no, no. I, I That's just the... Those are the actual dates. But you have to think about it is before it even gets to the, the day that the case is won, you've had like a year or two or three of fighting underneath it. And so it's more about the public consciousness and what people are thinking about where the state of, the, state of mind of the people are. I suppose I just think there are better, there are stronger works that might connect with that than this show. I think this is more about the individual and less about the society. Okay. But that's an interesting interpretation and just one I didn't see. So, is the show still relevant? Let's ask that big question. My opinion. I think with its beautiful and infectious score and dazzling choreography, the show can be very relevant for community, high school, collegiate, and regional houses. Blah, blah, blah. As for Broadway, it's not that I don't think that it's relevant. I just don't think now is the time to revive the show. But that being said, I would love to see what the next revival looks like, especially building upon what this last one looked like. I just think in the here and now moment... This isn't the revival we we need. Right. At well, this because moment. I think right now as a as a as a community, we need internal healing, not self-reflection. Yes. And well, this I, show is more about self-reflection. Well, and not just that, I mean just I think there are better stories to be told right now. We need to give the 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 pulpit, we need to give the microphone to some more important stories that need to be told. Um and when we get to revivals, we have to be very selective about what stories are being told or how they're being told. And I think maybe a year or two from now, it also needs to be revived in the best way possible. I mean, that was an epic revival. Make sure you build upon it. You don't take a step back. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, I, 
we, given the direction how Broadway is going, with the creative minds coming to the table who are who are finally being invited and let to, I shouldn't say invited, because screw invitations. Being they, allowed at the table. They've deserved a right to the table for the longest time. The, the creative minds that are at the table now, and 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 contributing to it, on all fronts, performers, designers, directors, everyone, the stuff that is coming out is so exciting. The reimaginings, the reworkings, the retoolings, the way that they just tweak a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and you go, I never would have seen it that way. And it's so successful. It makes you go, okay, so what can you do with this one? And what can you do with that one? And there are shows out there that I'm like, I don't think that this could work, but what could what could you do with it? What, what life experiences do you have or knowledge do you have that I don't that you can apply and really just turn this on its head and give it new life. So I'd like to see what the next group of designer directors do with the show. Because it's so reinventable, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So we had the good fortune of seeing the show twice, back in 2013 and 2014. So the first thing I want to get out of my head before I forget is about the circus performers. So I remember seeing the show and all the crazy contortionists and flying and trapezes and jumping and tumbling and balancing and everything. And I was just like, well, expletive, like F my life. I already am like thinking I've got to be fit as a fiddle and the best singer, dancer, actor. And now all of a sudden the game is raised and I got to go on how to tumble and contortionize and fly. And God, like it doesn't get any easier. Like this show just, I'm going to quit. I'm just going to go and I don't know, build boxes or something, you know. And then when we met the company afterwards to find out that they were all professional circus performers, I was like, oh, thank God. Like, you know. Yeah. It I was, was like, cool. So you aren't like just an, an, an actor. And most of them actually weren't. They're like, no, I'm just a contortionist. No, I'm a circus performer. I'm a trapeze artist. And I was like, oh, Because I was like, I don't think I could <laughs> do what you do, period, on top of everything that I have to learn. Right. But meeting the original cast, including Terrence Mann, who I had met over, um, oh Lord, 17 years ago from that point, back Mm -hmm. in Beauty and the Beast. Mm -hmm. And then Andrea Martin. I just love Andrea Martin. Well, and then we got to see, um, the second time we saw it, um, what's his bucket, who's the original Pippin, was in. uh, John Rubenstein. Yeah. He was in for uh, Charlemagne. Charlemagne and then before we, the tour happened. Yep. And then, of course, we got to meet Patina Miller again because we saw her in Sister Act. And she had just won the Tony. And she, oh, she's so nice. Yeah. And I she just, was amazing. I remember this show really just awake, awoke something. Awa- awakened? Awokened? Awoken something. Awakened? Awakened? Something in me. Um creatively that just inspired me to keep going down this path because the show I saw was a beautiful combination of all the elements of theater. Yes. 
I just remember being blown away by the show and just, it was like nothing that I expected. I remember being so moved by the show that we missed a dinner cruise just to meet the cast. Mm-hmm. Remember, it was like a Sunday afternoon. We saw the Sunday matinee and we were supposed to catch a cab to appear over in Jersey, just on the other side of 42nd Street. Mm-hmm. And the way it had timed out was you get out of the show, show was at three, you get out of the show about five, five thirty, catch a cab, we get over there, and the you were boarding at six thirty. Mm-hmm. And we were like nuts to this. I was like, I have to meet this company and just tell them how amazing they were because it was that good. And we, <laughs> we ended up just being like, afterwards we met the company, we called up the cruise line, we're like, hi, we're just sick. <laughs> And they gave us, they comped our tickets for a whole year, and we just took a lunch cruise the next year. It was, fa- I mean, it was super nice of them, but I was like, yeah, no dinner cruise is worth going and missing meeting Andrea Martin, Patina Miller, Terrence Mann, or all, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. no. Well, and especially, it just felt right to be able to let them know that their show was amazing. I'm sure they knew, but yeah. yeah. Speaking of life-changing, theater's back, and we hope you can join us at a show soon. You'll be able to catch Pippin somewhere at a theater near you soon, I hope. We also want to remind you that you can now become a producer and patron of the show by getting your backstage pass. Information about our backstage pass can be found at patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and... Keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. Two friends from old New York town Met in a foreign land One thing the praises of if you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at StageWhisperPod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar, The Joy Drops, Spring Merkaba, and Billy Murray. <laughs>